making amazing, tasty, and healthy foods for underserved communities. I'm Robert Colangelo. This is Green Sense, where we bring you eco innovations that are changing your world. My guest this week is Bryant Terry, chef in residence at San Francisco's Museum of the African Dysphoria in San Francisco. Chef Bryant, welcome to Green Sense. Hey, thanks for having me, Robert. Chef, you have a very interesting experience, and uh, as most chefs, uh, they come from such diverse backgrounds, but they all have a common love for food. You're quite an accomplished young man there. I graduated a chef's training program at the National Gourmet Institute for Health and Culinary Arts in New York, a former PhD student with an MA in history focused on African dysphoria from NYU, and the most important accomplishment is you have a loving wife and two daughters. Now tell us the backstories. What inspired you to be a chef? You know, I can talk a lot about just growing up in uh, the South and having family that has roots in um, the rural South with farms in Mississippi and Arkansas and Tennessee um, and how they brought those traditions and agrarian knowledge and survival um, instincts to Memphis, where I grew up. But the main impetus for me uh, moving into this food space was learning about the work of the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense and uh, specifically their work that uh, understood this intersection in the late 1960s of uh, poverty, malnutrition and institutional racism. And they addressed it uh, with their grocery giveaways and their free breakfast for children program, uh, which was a program aimed at feeding young people a hot nourishing breakfast every morning. And um, when I was in graduate school, I learned more about their survival programs, uh, those being two among them. And I understood that, you know, so many young people now were, um, as Raj Patel says, stuffed and starved. They were eating a lot of uh, edible food like substances, high in sugar, fat and salt and processed and fast. And I knew that that work was still relevant. So I founded an organization called Be healthy that use cooking as a way to engage young people and develop a new generation of leaders in the food systems world. So what brought you from the South to New York, New York City? Uh, graduate school. I moved from New Orleans where I was an undergrad at uh, Xavier University to um, study at NYU under um, the one of the, our preeminent historians of our times, uh, Robin D.G. Kelly. Um, I, you know, learned so much um, in the three years that I was in that program, um, how to write, how to think, how to research. Um, but I, I had this deep longing to make an impact um, and address this issue around many communities across the country having very little access to healthy, fresh, affordable and culturally appropriate foods. And I wanted to uh, do all I could to, uh, you know, have the most impacted communities, those who were uh, dealing with food apartheid, as we often describe it, uh, be the leaders who are uh, addressing the physical, the economic, the geographic barriers to accessing good food in their communities. Well, you have a master's degree in history, and it's focused on African dysphoria, if I pronounce that right. Uh, those that didn't diaspora. It, tell, diaspora. Us what, <laughs> tell us what African diaspora means. <laughs> uh, the African diaspora is simply the dispersal of people um, from the African continent through all parts of the globe where they've traveled. And we're talking about, you know, pre-Columbian um, voyages um, and obviously uh, the dispersal, uh, the kind of violent dislocations of the transatlantic slave trade. So, you know, my work uh, largely draws from the flavor profile 
profiles, the cooking techniques, the uh, classic dishes and ingredients of, you know, food throughout the African continent, uh, the Caribbean, the American South, where I grew up and really highlighting and celebrating. You know, when I talk about um, black American food, I often describe it as the original modern uh, global fusion uh, cuisine. And um, I really am invested in highlighting how healthful and delicious uh, these uh, foods are and bringing them more to the center of our consciousness um, because for, for far too long, they've been at the, the margins of a lot of our consciousness and the way that we practice growing and uh, cooking and eating food. Well, I've been involved in a pioneer in indoor vertical farming, and I've worked with lots of chefs and I love chefs because they're analogous to uh, the F1 race cars uh, and how that technology trickles down to the consumer. When you work with chefs, you know, they're, they're great at, at crunch and flavor profiles and texture and uh, growing vegetables for them and uh, making just wonderful dishes. So I'm really impressed with your background. And one of the unique projects you focused on is working to lower disease rates in food insecure communities. Uh, again, you have such a, a unique uh, background and combination of skills. Tell us more how you're doing that. You know, I, my, so the, 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 the majority of my body of work is actually uh, vegan uh, recipes and, and, and cookbooks that celebrate uh, plant centered uh, food. And for me, it's, you know, it's about understanding that eating um, a plant forward plant centered diet is a powerful tool to addressing the exponential rise in preventable diet related illnesses that we've seen across, you know, uh, you know, and, and just generally in um, the United States. And we know that African-Americans have some of the highest rates of preventable diet related illnesses. And there's a growing body of research that is, um, you know, making it clear that uh, you know, shifting from the standard American diet, eating a more plant centered diet um, can be very effective in um, helping to prevent um, any chronic illnesses. And in some cases, um, and, and, you know, also ameliorating symptoms, but in, in some cases uh, reversing chronic illnesses, the, the physicians committee of Responsible Medicine, a D.C.-based organization, is building a strong body of research where people who are coming in with uh, pre-diabetes and type 2 diabetes, uh, when they move from the standard American diet to a uh, plant-centered um, diet, it's actually improving their numbers and in many cases reversing type 2 diabetes. So I don't necessarily think that everyone um, you know, should be a vegan. And I do understand that it's a tool for uh, better health. And I think that in terms of um, Black folks... Uh, uh, we should be eating our cultural foods as a path to our health liberation. Well, as you've mentioned, you've published four cookbooks and your philosophy maybe can be summed up in this quote as people think of vegetarian and vegan food as bland. I want to prove that a meal without meat can be amazingly satisfying. And so I picked two recipes from your Afro vegan cookbook. Both sound great. And now I want you to pick your favorite one. And then I want you to tell us how to make it. So the first is Creole spiced plantain chips, and the second is tofu po'boys. So tell us, which one do you like best, and how do you make it? Wow. I don't know if I could choose one that I like best, but I think the one that resonates the most with me now um, 
are the Creole Spice Plantain Chips. And it's simply because I have been developing a menu for this fundraiser. And and one of the recipes I use is actually uh, plantain powder, where I take green plantains, fry them, grind them into a powder, and use them as a um, garnish to add some umami and some depth of flavor. But, you know, plantains are one of those staples of the African diaspora. We see them um, throughout West and Central Africa. They're obviously very popular in um, a lot of Afro-Caribbean cooking. Um, and I just love them because that, that those, it, so the, the spicy Creole seasoning comes from my time living in new Orleans and, and really falling in love with, um, you know, Louisiana Creole cooking and, um, you know, the plantain chips it, It's really my, it's kind of a it's emblematic of my approach to cooking, which is really that of a collages or even a hip hop producer where I take different elements and flavor profiles files and ingredients and cut and paste and remix in order to show these commonalities throughout the diaspora. Um, and also to, you know, kind of, uh, playing off of this idea of Sankofa, this West African concept of looking backward as we move forward um, so that people can really embrace our cultural foods and make them in a way that um, makes sense um, in the contemporary context. And that's modern and that's fun and delicious. And I think that that recipe really nails all those areas. See, you're a, you are an F1 race car. so at the diaspora museum you host dinners designed to start conversations with people of color around real food diets and you're promoting how people should eat more from scratch meals tell us more about that and what's been the outcome of these dinners how have you changed people's behavior yeah, well, I started this residency at the Museum of the African Diaspora in San Francisco in 2015, and I create public programming, um, everything from panel discussions to book signings with authors. And we've done these diaspora dinners, both at the museum and the St. Regis Hotel next door. And I, you know, since I started this work, I really wanted to, I've always thought about how we can widen the net or kind of build a bigger table, if you will, and bring more people into the conversation and, and build a bigger base for this movement that we just as food justice. And I, I'm, I'm very clear that, you know, starting with the heady intellectual ideas or even talking about public policy issues, that doesn't necessarily resonate with everyone. But what does is a delicious meal and sitting at the table and, and connecting with friends and family and people in our formal and informal kinship networks. So my guiding mantra has been start with the visceral to ignite the cerebral and end at the political. We need to address the um, inequities that are baked into public policy. Uh, I think it's important that we, you know, think deeply about how we can push this movement forward. But I think some of the most powerful ways to help people feel invested in this work is by um, teaching them how to grow food from scratch. And I will, or three, two, one, teaching folks how to uh, grow food sustainably, um, helping to empower people to have a cooking practice where they're making meals from scratch and, you know, gathering around the table and, and, and having fun and listening to music and enjoying delicious uh, local seasonal sustainable food. Well, uh, as I mentioned in my day job, I build greenhouses and vertical farms, and we're all about uh, putting these close to the consumer or at the point of consumption so that you could have year-round produce pesticide-free. And you founded an after-school program in New York that taught kids how to grow and cook fresh food, and you plan to launch a similar program in San Francisco and Oakland. Uh, Tell us more about that. 
You know, I started this organization, Be Healthy, uh, because when I think about uh, the issue around lack of access to healthy, fresh, affordable and culturally appropriate food in cities, I realized that we need to be looking at the people who are most impacted by food injustice or food apartheid um, in order to you know, help us determine solutions for um, getting out of this mess. And I, I truly believe when we talk about food, food justice, it needs to move beyond advocacy and direct service. And um, it calls for organized responses by those who are most impacted by these issues. And, and I know that, you know, when I think about it as a historian, when I think about the most, some of the most powerful movements of the 20th century, from the anti-apartheid movement in South Africa to the civil rights movement in the U.S., young people, their brilliance, their bravery, their uh, willingness to put it on all on the line uh, really help push these movements forward. And I would argue that food justice has to be led by young people who are living in historically marginalized communities. So I'm always going to be loyal to young people and uplifting them. And I'm so glad that all of my my work started as a grassroots activist and working with young people, because it's really the lens to which I see um, all the work that I do from writing books to now being a publisher and even uh, more of the kind of um, future work uh, moving into the contemporary art space and, um, you know, um, new media and mass media as well. So um, we'll, we'll see what it develops over the next couple of years. Well, it's something to be able to actually grow something, touch it all the way through the process and then cook with it. So that's a great tactile learning experience for these kids. Um and, and Robert, I, I just want to play off of that point. I, I, I think you're so right. And one of the most powerful things I saw when I work with young people in Be Healthy, and these were young people who came from the lower economic strata of New York City. Um, they lived in these um, food insecure neighborhoods. And, and, and you know, it, this may sound just I don't know, absurd or just sad to you and me, but many of them would come in and, you know, they would say, I don't drink water. I haven't drink, you know, I just drink sodas or I haven't eaten a vegetable since I was in middle school. These were high school students. And what I found, uh, which you know, is so uh, such a powerful way to kind of enroll people and, and shift their habits and attitudes and politics. When we took them to urban farms and community gardens, and we taught them experientially about the seed to table cycle, and they harvested those vegetables and they brought them back to where we were and they cooked them, they tried um, all types of new things that they wouldn't have tried in any, um, in any other circumstance. And I, I, I truly truly believe that, you know, growing food and uh, making meals from scratch can be such a powerful way to get people excited about um, improving our food system. And I hear all this talk about food deserts and people think it's just an absence of food, but it's not. It's much deeper than that. It's a it's a absence of heart and soul. People don't have the education in the background to understand about what we're talking about. So I really appreciate what you're doing out there. Um, I grew up uh, with Italian heritage, and when we were young, we had Sunday dinners. Uh, we'd get two meals that day, breakfast and dinner. It'd start around 3 p.m. All the aunts and uncles and cousins would get together. My grandmother would make that wonderful Sunday sauce. It would cook for hours, meatball, sausage, neck bones. I know maybe as a vegan, you didn't like that, but, you know, for us, that was uh, that touched our heart. And uh, it made us feel really good. And then if you were a good kid, she'd let you dip that Italian bread in that sauce and mm. to up that gap. And it was delicious. Mm-hmm. And my love for cooking and growing fresh uh, foods and cooking with simple ingredients really came from my grandmother and mother. And, you know, food is more than just nourishment. It brings people together to care, you know, to share a common joy. 
And I wanted to know from you, how do you use food to bring people together from diverse ethnic backgrounds to focus on our commonalities, not our differences? Yeah. Um, You know, I think that when we really get to the core of a lot of these uh, food traditions before the industrialization of our food system, there's so many commonalities. There are so many ways in which, you know, these traditional techniques around growing food and um, preserving food. You know, I I think a lot about um, you're sharing these uh, childhood food memories by your grandmother. And I, I think about my own and one of the most um, you know, salient memories for me is just this, this beautiful cupboard that my maternal grandmother kept in her kitchen that had, you know, pickled pears and peaches and carrots and green beans and figs and sauerkraut and blackberry jam and chow chow. And when I talk about, um, you know, her kitchen and that tradition, it resonates with people across cultures and ethnicities because, you know, something like canning and pickling and preserving, you know, we see this throughout the globe um, kind of in traditional food preparation. And so I I think for me using food and, um, you know, gathering at the table is such a powerful way for us to really focus in on the commonalities that we have and, you know, to look at the enemy. And and for me, the enemy is, um, I, I guess the, the, the enemies are, are the, the, the five multinational food corporations that largely control our food system. I think that the food system should be in the control um, under the control of the people of everyday folks um, and not corporations. And when people are educated about this reality and the way that these corporations have very little stake in addressing labor or um, environmental issues and certainly not ethical issues when it t- comes to you know the abuse of animals, um, I think a lot of people feel like, yeah, this is something that they want to find for, which is a better food system that's fair, that's ethical, that's sustainable, that's just. And, um, you know, once again, food and just gathering at the table is such a powerful way to help people to make those connections. Well, one of the good things that came out of COVID is that people are starting to recognize that we need a shorter tail on our supply chain and there's a bigger focus on locally grown fresh food. So I think that's a good thing. Yeah. Um, but I've really enjoyed our conversation, but in closing, I understand you have a new cookbook out. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. My latest book is black food. It's an anthology that brings together over 100 contributors throughout the African diaspora. Recipes are certainly a through line. Um, however, there um, are, you know, just thought provoking essays and riveting poetry and a moving artwork. And um, this book just contains multitudes. It was published, um, you know, last year in October, and um, it has gone on to be a commercial and critical success. Uh, we won um, the Art of Eating Award, which is awarded to the best uh, food uh, book about food uh, that came out in 2021. And um, and actually, uh, this this book, Black Food, as well as my last book, Vegetable Kingdom, are both up for James Beard Awards um, in, in the upcoming ceremony. So, um, you know, I, I think that if people really want to get a better understanding of the history and culture um, and the shape and development of food throughout the African diaspora, this is a great place to start. And the beautiful thing is you can cook from it, but it can sit on your table as a coffee table book because it's you know, just a work of art and it can sit on your, your nightstand because the essays are so engaging. So it's a little something for everyone in there. Well, Chef Bryant, I really enjoyed our discussion. Stay fresh, keep cooking 
And thanks for being on Green Sense. I appreciate it, Robert. Thanks for having me on. That's Brian Terry, chef in residence at San Francisco's Museum of the African Diaspora in San Francisco, talking about healthy food to cure underserved communities. Green Sense is an independent radio show that relies on the generous financial support of patrons like you to produce a high quality audio broadcast that promotes innovators with practical, sustainable solutions. Your financial support covers operating expenses so we can continue to tell great stories and inspire action. If you're interested in being a patron, call at 312-493-1470 or visit the greensensefarms.com website to download the patron form. I'm Robert Colangelo. Thank you for listening to Green Sense and catch the Green Sense Minute every Thursday and Saturday on News Radio 780 AM and 1059 WBBM Chicago. 